This morning we turn to Revelation chapter 14. Let's continue to move through this book. This last book of the New Testament. Revelation chapter 14. Where we're at today. The back of your bulletin is the outline. As you look at that, you're reminded that we're in a section of the book that we're calling an interlude or a parenthesis. It's an interlude to what? Well, to the unfolding of the judgments of the seven-sealed book. And in these interludes, in these parentheses, we are given important additional information that relates to those events of judgment. And if you remember, those events of judgment have to do with God's wrath against apostate Israel who had rejected Jesus Christ and crucified him. And then to add sin to sin, they rejected the second offer in God's mercy through the apostles, beginning on the day of Pentecost. When it was offered to them, they could yet be forgiven, even for that horrible crime, if they would repent and believe the gospel. But instead of believing the gospel, they doubled down on their rebellion and they persecuted the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we're learning here in these interludes is important things about that rejection and that spiritual war that was behind that rejection. In chapter 12 and chapter 13, we saw the warfare, the battle of the ages, that it was between the dragon, that is in the vision it was a dragon, who is identified as that old serpent, Satan and the devil who came at the very beginning and the very dawn of human history and tempted the woman in the garden to sin against God. She followed his temptations and lies, and then Adam followed her and disaster, humanly speaking, fell upon all of us because of that sin. But in the darkness of the hour, God said, as he gave his word of judgment against the serpent, that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. Yes, he would, um, the serpent would bruise his heel, but the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent. And so the serpent was put on notice from the beginning that it would be through the woman and her offspring, this seed that would be his overthrowers. And therefore, all through history, he is fighting against the woman. And the woman here is the church. First of all, found in Eve, because Eve and Adam repented. God covered their sin, and she became the mother of, or the woman, representative of the church. When we come to chapter 12, we see this set forth in a vision. And this war between the woman and the dragon, and the seed of the woman who is born, this child of hers, and how the dragon waited to destroy him at the very moment of his birth. But God protected him. And of course, this was Jesus Christ who fulfilled his ministry. And then he ascended at the end of his victorious work to the right hand of God, the Father, to God and to his throne. But that was not the end of the war. And then Christ, from his position of Lord of Lords and King of Kings sent forth his angels, his messengers, his apostles, his prophets, 
into the world. But the devil countered with his angels. And what were they? They were his false prophets, his false apostles. And there was this great battle in the first century there as Christ went forward with his people to establish the new covenant. The new covenant church, Satan responded and there was the great war and the persecution came upon the church of God. But the church overcame. At the end of chapter 17, we move from the church in its, its Judean sense to the church that was birthed in the Gentile lands through the witness of the apostles, Peter and Paul and James and John. And the word of God was preached throughout the nations. And I believe that's who we're talking about in verse 17 of chapter 12, the remnant of her seed. Having failed to destroy the church in Judea, from which the gospel was preached to all the world, he then turned his anger and his rage, the dragon did, upon the remnant of her seed, the rest of the woman's seed, that is the Gentile church in the Roman Empire. And then we saw in chapter 13, the agents of the dragon in the Gentile world to destroy the church in the Roman Empire. And that was the first beast. And the second beast, the first from the sea, the second from the land. The first being a symbol of Rome, particularly as Rome and its power is uh, manifested in the Caesar, the ruling Caesar. And of course, in the historical context of Revelation, the Caesar of that day was Nero. And he is the beast that's being spoken of here. He is the one who unleashed the first Roman persecution upon the Christian church. And it was a vicious persecution. And he had Christians slaughtered by the hundreds and thousands in Rome. But it didn't just stop there. His hatred, that is the dragon's hatred through the beast, then spread to the provinces. And the second beast that we saw were the Roman officials, the governors, the proconsuls, the commune, in the, in the Roman provinces and in their cities, who then took the imperial policy and applied it and persecuted the church in those lands. So this is a, this is a, a, a vision of of bloodshed, intense warfare, conflict, the rage of the evil one against the church, and seeing these great battles. And so these two chapters tell of the war of the ages. But now we come to chapter fourteen. Praise be to God. This chapter tells us of the outcome of that war and the victory of Christ and the church over all the rage and the hate of the devil and his agents. We we see then chapter 14 as an important follow-up to chapters 12 and 13. Though Satan's malice and wrath is directed against Christ and his church, Chapter 14 teaches us that they will prevail. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Chapter 14 is a manifestation of that doctrine. The gates of hell do not prevail against the church. It's been Beckwith in his commentary on Revelation, as he introduces his comments on chapter 14, says, over against the appalling picture of warfare upon the saints, waged by the dragon and his agents, the beast, chapter 12 and 13, the apocalyptist, 
that is John, now opens a vision of the final triumph that lies beyond. Here is throughout the book, the prophecies of darkest trial are lightened up by a glimpse of the blessedness that awaits the victor at the end. End quote. And even further comments, but also excellent, is Milton Terry. As he gives his summary of uh, chapter 12, 13, and how 14 relates. He says, The revelation of the three great foes, the dragon, the beast from the sea, and the beast from the land, is followed immediately by a sevenfold disclosure of victory and judgment in the heavens. The purpose of these visions and voices from heaven is obviously to show that the powers of the heaven are mightier than those of the infernal serpent and his associates. The trinity of hostile forces, armed with many lying wonders, might seem from a human point of view invincible. But John, like the young servant of Elisha, when confronted with the horses and chariots and immense hosts of the king of Syria, is here admonished, that they which are with the persecuted church are more and mightier than they which make war against her. And compare 2 Kings 6, 15 to 17. The contents of this chapter are a vivid apocalyptic setting of much that is written in the second psalm. The enemies may rage and do their worst, but he that sitteth in the heavens shall have them in derision. End quote. And so chapter 14 is an important follow-up to chapter 12 to 13. It is filled with comfort for the people of God. In its original setting, its original context, it ministered strength and comfort to the churches of Judea who were being persecuted by their fellow Jews and were facing the horrors of the Jewish-Roman war And it ministered comfort also to the Gentile churches in the provinces of the Roman Empire who were facing the terrible persecution instigated by Nero in Rome and carried out by the Roman officials throughout the provinces. Each aspect of the early church there, the Judean church, the Gentile church, and we're talking more about geographics because as we know they are one body. But the church began in Judea, then it spread to the Gentile lands. Each one of these churches had their own particular tribulation to face. Their own particular persecution to endure. And God gives his word to them here to comfort them in their circumstances. Yesterday in our men's study, uh, Bob was, uh, Thomas Watson I believe it was, wasn't it? You were referring to, and he had this really wonderful point about the need for the promises of God, and he said that every trial we face has a particular promise from God to sustain us. I was really challenged by that. Uh, Some promises of God, when we're going through a hard time, don't affect us much. They don't really speak at that moment to our trial. But there's promises, or a particular promise in the Word that God has designed for you in your circumstance. We're saying the promises of God in this vision of the victory of the people of God are specifically designed to encourage the first century church. And of course, since we will face similar circumstances, 
the church in all ages as well. Now here's how I see the, the, the chapter breaking down 14 in relation to what we've just seen in chapter 12 and 13. First of all, the tribulation and persecution of the, of the Judean church is revealed to us in chapter 12. Okay? And in chapter 14, the vision and words of comfort for them specifically is in chapter 14, 1 to 5. And also verse 8. That's our text for this morning. The tribulation of the Gentile church was revealed to us in chapter 13. And the vision and words of comfort for the Gentile church in those circumstances is in chapter 14, verses 9 to 13. And the hope for both is the everlasting gospel of chapter 14, 6 through 7, which is the hinge point between the two parts. So this is how it fits together. The Bible is wonderfully um, structured, and it's so important to me personally and as a teacher to, to encourage you to see that there is structure here. This is not haphazard. So we have 12 and 13 with the terrible warfare, chapter 14 with the outcome of a victorious church, and to encourage us. And as chapter 12 particularly spoke to the needs of the Judean church, so he begins here in chapter 14, the Lord begins in chapter 14 with a vision to encourage the Judean church who is going through the things that are spoken of in chapter 12 as John is receiving the revelation and as they are reading it for the first time. Then chapter 13 the Gentile tribulation, is answered for us and the words of comfort for that church are given in chapter 14, 9 through 13. Beautifully structured. So our um, commitment here is to understand the word of God as it is put together by God himself. And I would remind you as we enter this that the theology, that is the doctrines and truths of God, His nature and how He works, the theology revealed in these chapters, 12, 13, and 14, also speak pointedly to us today. For that same theology is true today as it was then. It's working today as it did then. The war of the ages that we saw in those chapters is still ongoing today. It's the same war. The dragon and his agents are still the same. That is, he has his false teachers and messengers. He has the, 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 the beast of tyrannical civil government and the bureaucracy and officials that support it, the second beast. That's still going on today. The status of Christ that we learned in chapter 12 is still the same. It is the Father's right hand, victorious, he conquered. The protection of God that we see in chapter 12 and 13 for the people of God is still the same. The victory by faith that is revealed to us in chapter 14 is still the same. The judgment of the wicked is still the same. And the reward of the righteous is still the same. So we, we glean from this theology of God and apply it to our lives. Let me read uh, from the text here. And I looked... And lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty-four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, 
and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb wherever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. And worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast... See, here we're now entering into chapter 13, the worship of the beast, Gentile church. If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever They have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and who receive the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. So there it is. First part of the chapter deals with comfort to the Judean church in their circumstances. The second part, comfort to the Gentile church dealing with these beasts, Rome. First beast and the second beast. And God gives them the words that will give them endurance and patience and comfort. And we see in both of these visions the final glory of the faithful. No matter what we face on earth, no matter what tribulations are ours, there was a glorious future. One of the great things of Revelation is its revelation of heaven and the glories of the redeemed in the very presence of God. So there's much focus upon the terrible things that happened on earth in that era But this is more than balanced by the visions of the glories of the heavenly state for the people of God. So let's look now at this. Verses 1 to 5 will be our text here this morning. We want to look at the Lamb and the 144,000, which is found in verses 1 to 5. And looking at our outline here, first we want to look at their identity and where they are located as the vision is given in verse 1. 
Next, we want to consider their song in verses 2 and 3. And then thirdly, we want to look at their Christian character and Christian standing in verses 4 and 5. And what is given to us in verses 4 and 5 are five uh, declarations concerning their character and standing. Three have to do with their character, two have to do with their standing. A very uh, amazing and encouraging and challenging description of these individuals that are in the vision. So let's look at their location, their identity. We begin verse 1, and John says, And I looked. In other words, this is a vision. He's seeing these things. Remember chapter 13, verse 1, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven. Chapter 13, verse 11, or no, chapter 12, no, 13, 11, excuse me. And I beheld another beast coming out of the earth. And now he says, and I look. This is an ongoing vision. These are all together. Chapter 12, 13, and 14 are a continuing vision that is given to John. They all hang together, as I've just explained. And so what John just saw is now offset by this glorious vision. And the vision begins with him seeing a lamb. And lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion. Now, it is agreed by all, really. This is one of those rare places in Revelation where just about everybody agrees. <laughs> and that is that the Lamb here is the Lord Jesus Christ. The same Lamb, or Ram, that we had revealed to us in Revelation chapter 5, in the vision of the heavenly scene. One of the elders said unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book, to loosen the seals, seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the world." Yes, it's agreed by all that what we have here is a picture of that same heavenly scene and the, the Lamb is the glorified and victorious Jesus Christ. And therefore, the Mount Zion upon which He stands is without doubt the heavenly Mount Zion. Again, wide, almost unanimous agreement here. Because this is where Christ is located at this part of the book of Revelation. He is before the throne of God. He is in heaven, surrounded by the worshiping host. And the Mount Zion that he's standing upon here is not the literal Mount Zion on earth, but the Mount Zion on heaven. And so if this is where the Lamb is located, Mount Zion in heaven, so this is where the 144,000 are also located in this vision. Remember, the earthly Zion which was in Jerusalem, the earthly Zion was a symbol of God's throne and kingdom in the world. And it was the place in the Old Testament era where God dwelt in the temple, where his king lived, David and the, his descendants, so where they ruled, and it was the place where the people of God came to worship God, to praise God, and to submit themselves to His sovereignty. That's the earthly Zion. That it symbolized God's throne in heaven. It symbolized where the saints of God surround the throne of God to worship and praise Him. 
So this is talking about then the heavenly Zion. This is talking about the heavens. Hebrews 12 says this to the church. But you are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. This is the Mount Zion that's in our picture here. This is a heavenly scene. And so we're seeing the 144,000 with the Lamb in heaven. Now, who are the 144,000? There's really no doubt in my mind that these are the same 144,000 that we encountered in chapter 7. Why would we think any different? In chapter 7, we have the interlude in between the... the, uh, sixth and seventh seal, where there is a pause in judgment, there is a vision of this calamity about ready to sweep over the land. But before it does, the angels of judgment are restrained. Verse 2, And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth, to hurt the land and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their forehead. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed a hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And then to make that extremely clear, we go down now with a a statement of each tribe, all 12 tribes having 12,000 sealed from there. And so this 144,000 in Revelation 7 is symbolic of the full remnant of faithful Jews who believed in Jesus Christ in the first century as their Messiah. The 144,000 made up the church of God in Christ in Judea, Galilee, Samaria, and Jerusalem. And so these are the Jewish believers who, not like their brethren, who rejected Christ, they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we have here in this vision. That's the historical setting of this passage and comparing Scripture with Scripture. This is who we have in chapter 14, the same 144,000. By the way, I'd like to read a quote from Bass's commentary on Revelation, just as a a side note on interpretation and on 144,000. He says, no doubt you have heard of cults like the Jehovah Witnesses who identify themselves as the 144,000. Although there are hundreds, even thousands of errors in the teachings of these cult, 
cults. The great error here is to take this passage out of the context of the first century and make it apply to distant peoples and ages not even remotely considered by the Apostle John. Dispensationalists do the very same thing. Once revelation is removed from its historical context and original audience, you can make it say whatever you want, end quote. That is put so well. That's why Revelation has been used to identify history, historical events, historical figures from a millennia ago. And they're still doing it today. People are today, and the very news is going on now, looking at Revelation. This is being fulfilled, or this is the Antichrist. Well, you can do whatever you want with Revelation. You can plug in whoever you want to plug in to be the 144,000, or the beast, or the second beast, or whatever, if This is not limited to its historical setting and context. And this is is the burden that we must continue to push and lay upon each one of us that we're going to understand Revelation within its own self-designated context. Its own time frame that is repeatedly set before us when these things happen. When we do that, the book becomes intelligible. It becomes powerful and not just the plaything of our imaginations. So, this, so as he said there, once we did remove Revelation from its historical context and the original audience, you can make it say whatever you want. And his point here was you can make the 144,000 be whoever you want them to be if you divorce it from its context. Now, we, we extensively discussed 144,000 earlier. We're going to... If you want to reconsider that, you can go back and listen to the sermon on Sermon Audio. But we are going to move forward here that we're talking about these as being the believing church, the the elect of God in and among the Jews in Judea, Galilee, Samaria, and in Jerusalem. So this is the believing church. And we're told here that they have their father's name written in their forehead. It makes us think of chapter 7, verse 3, when we first saw them introduced, that the angels were to hold back on judgment, quote, till we have sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. Furthermore, we cannot read this idea of being written on their foreheads without thinking of Revelation 13, 13, 6, which we have just considered, where it said, excuse me, 13, 16, not 6, and he caused all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. It was the mark of satanic ownership. These have the mark of God's ownership upon them. We really don't think that this is a literal mark. Paul tells us that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise when we believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, we become God's people. The seal is really God's own name through the Holy Spirit placed Upon us. And the 144,000, then, we see here standing victorious with the Lamb in the heavenly Zion. Do you see they've changed location from chapter 7? Chapter 7, they were on the earth. Chapter 7, the, the, the horrors of the Jewish war had not begun. Chapter 7, judgment was withheld until they were sealed. Do you see the significance? They came through the judgment safely. The seal of God was real. It, it, it protected them. And so we move from the Judean church and all of its tribulation 
They were first sealed. Then in chapter 12, they're going through that tribulation, all that judgment, all the horrors of the, the, the rage of, of the, the dragon against them. Here we see them victorious in heaven. All of them. It's not the 143,999. Jesus didn't lose any of them. None of his sheep are ever lost. And these sheep in Israel... Of the first century church, they all show up in glory. If you're the sealed of God, your future is guaranteed by that seal. Now, it's true that we can misinterpret who we are, where we stand in Christ. There's no, this is not to give presumption to us. But if you're the elect of God, whom he calls, them he justifies. And whom he justifies, them he also what? Glorifies. And so that great passage in Romans goes from election before the foundation of the world to glorification at the end of the world. It's God's work that he has done. So do you see the the significance of this statement in the context? Everyone that was sealed, the horrors of the Jewish war and the persecution of the Christian church in Judea, not one was lost. And here they all stand victorious now in heaven. This is a vision of their victory It's a vision of God's fulfillment of his promise to them. So now we look at their song. They're in heaven singing their hearts out. They're singing so loud it sounds like the voice of many waters. They're singing and praising God with such a sense that it's the uh, great thunder. And then also he said, I heard the voice of harps harping with their harps. That's quite a phrase, isn't it? Harpers harping with their harps, almost a tongue twister. But there it is. And there's, we're, we're told in verse 3 they were singing a new song. And, and the idea of new here is one of freshness and uh, of fresh power. Now we know that, for, for example, the Psalms in the Old Testament are songs that were given by God to the people of God in worship, mainly through David, but through some others as well. And it, it, we have statements in there about singing a new song. That does not necessarily mean a new composition when it speaks in the Psalms of a new song, but it means singing it with new life, with new heart, with new strength, because the truths of it are speaking to you with great relevance and power. Did you ever have that happen in a hymn that you have sung? You sung it maybe almost by rote, Sunday after this Sunday, and you went through the motions, and then some, one Sunday you sing it, and it's a new song to you because it's speaking specifically to your hurt. It's speaking specifically to your need. It's bringing you the encouragement you need. It's bringing you the, the voice to praise God because God has done something wonderful in your life. And so it's a new song. This is the song of redemption. This is a living song. Their hearts are aflame as they sing it, is the idea. Now, as I read over this and meditated, I said, you know, this really sounds like a scene that I have seen before. S-C-E-N-E, that I have S-E-E-N before. Sorry about the homonyms there, get confused. Look back at chapter 5. And you will find the description of the worship and the singing of the song Around God's throne before the Lamb, as it's described in chapter 5, is almost exactly, not, not necessarily word by word, but 
point by point, exactly what we see in chapter 14. Verse 9, chapter 5. And they sung a new song, saying or singing, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, hath redeemed us unto God by thy blood, out of every kindred tongue and people and nation, hast made us unto our God, kings and priests. We shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, and glory, and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory, Power be unto him upon the throne, unto the Lamb, forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen, and the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him forever and ever. Also, we learned in, in chapter 4, in this scene of worship, that there was, that there was a playing of harps. What, what I think we're, we're seeing here is not a different scene not a different worship service. But what we have in chapter 14 is the focus of one of those groups in the great throng of heaven. In other words, the great throng that we saw in chapter 5. Now we just want to step back. John is given a vision of one of the groups there, and it's the 144,000. This is the picture of the 144,000 singing their hearts out like the rest of the saints will be as depicted in chapter 5. This is one special group that will be part of that throng. But you see, in a way, it says there that no man can learn that song but the 144,000. So are you telling me that that whole other group, the whole church of the ages that was singing in chapter 5, is the same as this one. This says only this group could learn it. I think we have to look at this in its context. Who are the 144,000? The redeemed Jews. And what are these men who can't learn the song? I think it's the group that the 144,000 was taken out of. What group were they taken out of? The Jews. No other Jew can sing this song. No other man of Judaism, of Judea, can learn this song out of the Jewish people except this elect, select group of God's people. These 144,000 were the men and women redeemed from the land of Israel. As it says in verse 3, They were redeemed from the earth. And as I've pointed out time and time again, context determines earth because it means earth in the sense of ground, land. And it's used not exclusively, but I believe primarily in the book of Revelation of the land of Palestine. These were the ones that were redeemed from the land of the Jews. And the rest of the Jews cannot learn this song because they rejected Jesus Christ. The rest of the Jews were the persecutors. They'd never be able to sing this song. 
but the Jews who believe, the, the, the early church in Judea that uh, put their lives on the line and say, follow Jesus Christ, they are the privileged ones to be singing the songs. In other words, the persecutors can't sing the song of redemption, but the persecuted are the ones who can sing it. This is victory. This is the, the blessing. This is what is given to the victorious saints of God in this passage. So that's what I think it's talking about, their song. Their song is the same as all the redeemed of all the ages. The first century Jewish church were saved out of the mass of Judaism by the grace of God. They are singing this song and no other Jew can sing it. No other Jew will sing it because they are apostates. In fact, instead of singing the song of the, of the redeemed, they'll be crying the doom of Who will save us from the wrath of the Lamb? Let the mountains fall upon us. Woe are we, we are undone. That's their song, that's their cry. So even though the Jews were the ones in power, they're the ones hailing these these poor, uh, persecuted Jewish believers before their synagogues and beating them and and killing some of them and and cutting them out of the the society and and the buying and selling in society. They were trodden down. They were hated of men. These are the ones, though, who win the victory in the end. They're the ones who are in heaven singing this glorious praise to their Redeemer, while the rest of the men, that is the Jewish persecutors, men and women, who persecuted those Jews cannot learn or sing the song. That's what I think it's saying in the context. And it's not a different vision than the one of chapter 5. It's just applied contextually to the 144,000 in this passage. Now the faithfulness of these first century Jewish Christians, I think, is now set forth in verses 4 and 5 under five particulars. Here we're going to have a description of these first century Jews who believed in Christ. The Peters, the Pauls, the James, the John, the Phillips, This is what we are given here. This is the description of these believers and how they overcame through the terrible tribulation they had to go through as pioneers for the Christian faith. These are the ones who believed the gospel as it was first preached in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. These are the men and women described here who led by the apostles and prophets of Christ, laid the foundations of Christianity in the world. They did all of this. They achieved this tremendous history-altering success in spite of intense persecution by their fellow Jews who had rejected Christ. In them and their persecutors, we see the words of Jesus were fulfilled in Mark 13, 9 to 13. We look back there, please, the Gospel of Mark 13, 9 to 13. This is the Markan account of the Olivet Discourse, which is, I haven't said real recently, but the Olivet Discourse is the background to the book of Revelation. It was given in more concise form when Jesus was answering the questions of his disciples and their amazement when they left the temple and they were glorying in how wonderful a building it was. And Jesus said, you see these stones? Not one's going to be left upon another. And this really knocked them for a loop. And as they were probably thinking about this, as they walked out of the city and went up uh, to the Mount of Olives and looked across 
the valley there and saw the glorious temple and they just couldn't believe it and said, Lord, when are these things going to happen? What's, what are you talking about? And he gave this discourse to answer him. And that discourse, as we know, was fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. But during that period of time, from the time of the Great Commission, from the time of the founding of the church to A.D. 70, they were going to undergo a period of tribulation as Jewish Christians. Speaking to Jewish Christians, here's what he says concerning their persecution. And that persecution was also spoken of in chapter 13 of Revelation. But here's how Jesus put it. Mark 13, 9. But take heed to yourselves, that is to my Jewish disciples. Take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils, and in the synagogues shall ye be beaten. Who is the they? It's the ones who control the synagogues. He's telling them their Jewish brethren are going to treat them savagely. Take heed to yourselves, for they, your Jewish brethren, shall deliver you up to councils, And in the synagogues you shall be beaten, and you shall be brought before rulers and kings for my name's sake, for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. And when they shall lead you, that is the Jews shall lead you, the unbelieving Jews shall lead the believing Jews, and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what you shall speak, neither do ye premeditate, but whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye, for it is not you that speak, but the Holy Ghost. Again, describing what happened will happen in Judea among the, the Jewish people. Now the brother shall betray the brother to death. And the father, the son, to death is the idea. And the children shall rise up against their parents and shall cause them to be put to death. And you shall be hated by all men, by all, literally, what? All the other Jews are going to hate you. They're going to want to kill you. You're going to go through the fires, Jesus is telling them. For my name's sake, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. What we're going to get a description of here in Revelation 14, 4 and 5 are those who endured to the end and are saved. Because in Revelation 14, 5, where are they? They're in heaven. They endured. They endured all the persecution and the victory is theirs. How did they do that? How did they overcome it's a great theme of Revelation, overcoming all these problems and difficulties. The Christian is not called to a life of ease. The Christian is not called to everything just going to go the way they want it. The Christian is called to trials and tribulation and suffering. It's part of our own purification, but it's part of our testimony to a lost world. It's part of the battle with sin. And so the ones who have endured to the end of the terrible persecutions the Jews visited upon the believing Jews, and also the devastations of the Jewish-Roman war that the Christians in Judea were exposed to. These individuals are pictured in 144,000. And here we're learning they did not just endure. Sometimes we think that endure means that it was sort of a passive type thing. They just sort of hung on. But they endured as Christians, men and women. They endured as Christian men and women should. And this is the testimony of heaven concerning them. First of all, they are not they which have defiled with women, for they are virgins. First point, you can see in the bullet, 
They have not defiled themselves with women. That is, they are, notice the italics, spiritual virgins. This has nothing to do with marriage and sexual ethics. But with faithfulness to their covenant with Christ. What does Ephesians 5, and 27 say? The covenant of marriage is a picture of the covenant of Christ with his church. And to break one's marriage covenant is to defile yourself with another person, another man or woman. It's spiritual adultery. It's spiritual harlotry. This is the picture here. These were faithful to their covenant with Christ. The Jews were the harlots. They had broken their covenant with God. But these were the faithful ones. They had not defiled themselves with women which is another indication this cannot be literal because the 144,000 are not only men. I read over it very carefully in chapter 7 again and here. There's nothing that said men anywhere. These are men and women. The 144,000 are men and women. And so it's not talking about literal defiling. This is a metaphor of fidelity to Christ. And it's a fidelity to Christ that was in the context of women or harlots. Who are they? The Jews. They were surrounded on every side by Jewish brethren who were false. They had rejected the gospel, the other Jews. They were persecuting the church. It's those kind of people that they did not defile themselves with. In other words, they did not go the same route. It says in Isaiah 121, How is the faithful city become a harlot? Context, that means Jerusalem. It was full of judgment and righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Notice the parallelism here. The faithful city is defined by a city that was full of justice and righteousness. That was Jerusalem at one time. But now the city had become a harlot. That is, it was filled with murderers. You see, the unfaithful Jews are called a harlot. See that? And that is, in the metaphor, a female figure. Listen to this. Jeremiah 3.8, again, Another prophet speaking against Israel's covenant breaking. And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, spiritual adultery, of course, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not and went and played the harlot also. Jeremiah 3.8. And so the woman here in this picture, the women are the harlots of Israel, the covenant-breaking Jews. They did not defile themselves with their fellow covenant-breaking Jews. They refused to go into their harlotry of unbelief, and they remained virgins, spiritual virgins. They remained faithful to their God. It's also interesting when we think about women here, that we think of some of the women of Revelation. You remember chapter 2? If you don't, well, let's just re- refresh our memory. Speaking to the church at Thyatira, verse 20, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against you, because thou sufferest that woman, Jezebel, 
which calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and eat things sacrificed to idols. See, the, and I gave her space to repent of her fornication. She repented not. But I will cast her into a bed and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. We have the Jezebels. We also have the great harlot, the mother of harlots in chapter 17 of Revelation, which we're not going to speak much on at this time, except say, upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. So context, these 144,000 Jews separated themselves, did not go into the spiritual harlotry and covenant breaking of Judaism. And the scribes and the Pharisees and the rabbis and their, their, their spiritual unfaithfulness to Christ. So they were faithful to Jesus Christ in their covenant. Secondly, and, and they separated from the unfaithful Jews around them. Secondly, they followed Christ, both in his example and teaching. Look at verse 4 says, These are they which follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Now what was Jesus' fundamental call of discipleship? What was it? Follow me. And these believing 144,000 Jews, and it's not literal to the number 144,000. Remember, it's symbolic. We don't know exactly what the number was, but it was significant. We know thousands were saved in early, the early preaching in the Gospels. I mean, in the book of Acts. But they followed Jesus Christ. The fundamental definition of a Christian is they follow Christ. That's a disciple. Luke 9.23, Jesus said unto them all, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. They heeded that call. And to follow Christ was to hear his teaching, seek to follow it and obey it and put it in the life, and also to look at his example that he set as revealed in the Gospels. Here's what Jesus said in John 10, 27. Here's the identity of his true sheep. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they, what is the finish? Follow me. This 144,000 of the true sheep because they follow Christ. And then he said this in John 12, 26. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Do you see what this is saying in this context here of Revelation? These 144,000 are with Christ in heavenly glory, singing around his throne because they followed him. Jesus says, if any man follows me, where I am, they will be also. And this is a fulfillment right here. Thirdly, not only do they follow Christ, they're redeemed from men and they're the first fruits unto God and unto Christ. It says this, these were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. First of all, let's look at the word redeemed. By the way, this is a status statement here, a standing statement, not a character statement. This was their standing. They were the redeemed of God and His first fruits. 
The word redeemed meant originally to purchase from the slave market. To go and pay, you person in the slave market, you go, you have the, the, the price necessary, you pay the price, and the person is, becomes your servant. You're set, they're set free from the slave market to become your servant. And of course, if, if the master is a wonderful master like Jesus Christ, then you're really set free from slavery. Now it says, they were redeemed by the blood of Christ. Because that's the price of redemption, chapter 5, verse 9. That was the song of the saints in heaven. He redeemed us by his blood. He purchased us from the slavery. But in the context, what's the slave market that Jesus purchased them out of? It was Judaism. They were slaves to Judaism, right? They were benighted by the scribes and the Pharisees. And they were going along with all of their man-made religious hocus-pocus. But Christ came into Judea. Bought them out of it. He delivered them from that. He saved them from the false religion of Judaism. Remember, again, I must emphasize, true biblical faith was not Judaism. The Old Testament was not Judaism. That was men who twisted it by their traditions into an unrecognizable uh, religion that is not recognizable by God as being true. So they were purchased... This 144,000 were purchased out of the unbelieving mass of the Jews of Palestine. Furthermore, we're told they were the first fruits. They're the first fruits of the new covenant people of God. Who were the first believers in the church? Go read Acts 2 and the day of Pentecost. Read Acts chapter 3. Read Acts chapter 4 and the conversion of Jews. They were the first. What's the first fruit referred to when... When the farmer goes out to his field and his first crops are ready, you remember the first fruits of, you remember those of you who have gardens, you go out to see that first tomato plant, and that first tomato is just ready. It's the first one. Many more come, but it's the first fruits. Israel was specifically supposed to recognize God's goodness in the harvest by having a festival of first fruits and giving an offering to God of the first fruits. What, what we're saying here is that their status was they were the very first fruits given to Christ by the Father, for his redemptive work. And so this is the Jewish believers. See how they fit first fruits? Paul put it this way in Ephesians 1, 12 to 13. Remember, Ephesians is that great work of God to unite Jew and Gentile in one body. They used to be separate. There was a great wall of separation, but God has broken it down, and now in one body, all believing Jews, all believing Gentiles make up the one Christian church. But in the beginning, he says this, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Jews. He's talking about himself. Because he goes on to say this, in whom ye, that is Gentiles, also trusted. After that you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. But what Paul is saying is we were the first ones to trust in Christ and we're the ones who brought you the message. And then you did the same thing we did. You believed. So Paul is talking about Jewish Christians were those who first trusted Christ. They're first fruits. That's their glorious standing. The 144,000 are held forth in that glorious uh, privilege and honor. And that privilege and honor came to them because they endured persecution. 
They would not commit spiritual adultery with their uh, Judaizing brethren. Number four, they didn't speak guile. They did not speak guile. Verse five, and in their mouth was found no guile. Now this word guile, uh, let me give the definition from uh, Liddell and Scott's Intermediate Greek-English Lexicon. He said, properly, it means bait for a fish. Of course, stop. What, do you, what, do you do? what are you doing when you bait for a fish? Well, you get a hook and you put something on that uh, the fish wants. There's this tasty worm or grub or something like that on that. But are you trying to feed the fish? No, you want to catch it and kill it and eat it. And so it's a deceptive thing. Bait is deceptive. And this word originally was used of bait to catch an unsuspecting, innocent little fish. (laughs) Maybe a big fish. Continue the definition. It says, then it was used for any cunning contrivance for deceiving or catching someone. As in the story of the Trojan horse. Remember the Trojan horse was put forward as a gift but inside of the horse, the hollow horse, were the soldiers. And at nighttime came, they came out and took the city. Guile. Then they go on the definition. Generally, then, it means any trick or stratagem, any guile, craft, cunning, or treachery. So they didn't act treacherously. They didn't speak guile. Now, context is what? The Jews in Palestine. This word, this very word is used numerous times or a number of times in the book, in the Gospels and Acts to talk about what the Jews did toward Jesus. Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people under the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety. This is the very same word subtlety in English here. It's the Greek word in our text translated guile. The Jews were filled with guile, subtlety. They were always trying to catch Jesus. Remember those incidents when they went and asked him trick questions and were trying to catch him in his words? They were, they were uh, unprincipled, deceptive, guile-filled people, the Jews. You see, the, the Jewish people historically are very, uh, very smart, very crafty. Sadly, in their rebellion, their craft and wisdom and prudence, which could be used for stratagems of good things, have become stratagems for evil. And they are still marked that way today. The Jews, unbelieving Jews, are filled with guile. They were in Jesus' day. And here's the point. These 144,000s had to live among this guile-filled people. And they didn't go the same way. They were not filled with guile. Here's a description of the Jews of the first century. Acts 13, 6 to 10. And when they had gone through the Isle of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, This is that Jew, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him, and he said, Oh, full of all subtlety. That's the word guile in our passage here. First century Jew filled with guile, 
to oppose the gospel. Fill of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? I believe that is a divine commentary on the people of the first century Judaism upon whom the 144,000 had their being. This is the kind of people they had to deal with, and they didn't follow it. In fact, they were people of honor, of truth, honesty. They were not filled with cunning and craft and treachery. True Christians are not guile, crafty, cunning, treacherous people. If anybody is like that, they're not a Christian. Period. What they are, if they're all full of subtlety and mischief, they're the child of the devil. They're the enemy of righteousness. And they always seek to pervert the right ways of the Lord. That's how Paul described that. And this is the kind of people that these 144,000 lived in among and who sought their death. But then there's this great phrase of Jesus on this word guile. John 147. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him. Now Nathanael was a Jew, right? And he said of him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. This is the true believer in Israel and today. When the, those who came to Christ, Jesus said, Behold, an Israelite, that is a true Israelite. There's no guile in them. And there was no guile in this body of believers, the 144,000. There was no guile in Paul, who was a Jew. He said this concerning his ministry Our exhortation was not of deceit nor uncleanness nor in guile. Paul was one of the 144,000. So was Peter. Do you ever think about that? The apostles are part of the 144,000. They are the Jewish believers of the first century. There was no guile in Paul. When he preached and he taught, he didn't use deceit. He didn't use guile. He spoke the word of God. Here's how he put it. We've renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness. And this is a description of how the Jews were walking. Dishonesty, not working in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. 2 Corinthians 4.2 Finally, they stood without fault before the throne of God. So they had no guile. They, were, they had no guile. They were not like the, the, the whole host of the uh, lost Christ crucifying generation. Says verse 5, they, for they're without fault before the throne of God. Now, this again is not character, this is standing. The word fault here, or without fault, means blameless, faultless. And it's usually in the New Testament used in a moral or ethical, legal sense of someone who has no sin or transgression that can be laid to your charge or for which you have to give account. This group standing before the throne, this 144,000 Jews were blameless before God. Now the question is, is that blameless on their account or on somebody else's? This is not the work of the 144,000. They themselves are singing a song that He redeemed us. It says in Colossians 1.22, That the work of blamelessness before the throne of God is the work of Christ, not of men. 
in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. And in that context of Colossians, talk about his blood that was shed for us. Christ died for our sins so that he might one day present us before God holy. That is completely holy. No blame can be attached to us. We can, God, God will not be able to give one reproof against us because it's all forgiven. You see, the 144,000 did not achieve that standing by, by works, but by faith. Really, this blamelessness is another way of talking about justification. Justified. Completely innocent. Completely righteous before the throne of the Almighty Judge. Jude put it this way in his doxology. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless. There's our word before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To, our only, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. And so the blamelessness wherein they stood was not their own works, but was by faith. And Christ made them blameless. And so this is the victory of the 144,000, though they were called to go through a baptism of suffering. Their homes were, were broken up. Their own children and spouses betrayed them. They were hauled before their, their neighbors in the synagogues, beaten. They, some were put to death. This is what they faced in the first century. And they were about to face it when John wrote this book. And so this was given to them to show what's on the other side. What's on the other side of all this suffering, brothers and sisters? What's on the other side of the hatred we experience? What's on the, on the other side of of um, the cost of following Christ. This is what's on the other side. And God guarantees it to his people. So in this vision, in conclusion, in this vision of chapter 14, 1 to 5, we see the glorious victory of the Jewish church of the New Testament period, symbolized in the 144,000, from the period of the ministry of Christ until A.D. 70. And in spite of all persecution, all the war, all the malice of Satan and his agents, they triumph through Christ their Lord. Here we see them in heavenly glory singing the new song of the redeemed. And so it has been, and so it will be for all the elect of God, for all true believers in Christ. No matter what trials, tribulations, and persecutions the people of God are called to endure, they shall overcome. This is the end. This is the victory that we have, not in ourselves, but in Christ. Furthermore, we have here for us today a beautiful and inspiring picture of what it means to be a Christian. The true seed of Abraham, to be an Israelite in whom there is no guile, This is what Christianity looks like. And it was first manifested in the first fruits unto God, the Judean church. First of all, what does it speak of? It speaks of spiritual purity. We do not commit whoredom with the world. We are not unfaithful to our marriage covenant with Christ. We do not fall under the persecutions of false brethren in the false church. 
you know, all around us today, we have people who claim to be Christians who are nothing better than this harlot woman that Judaism was. And they're calling us to join them. But we must remain spiritual virgins and have nothing to do with their assemblies, nothing to do with their idolatries. We're to have spiritual purity. Now, this is not easily attained, spiritual purity. It's a battle. But it's a mark of the people of God. And as we grow in Christ more and more, we become like this picture. That we're not defiled with the harlotry and idolatry and, and the, the, the false women. And this is, remember, it's, that's a symbol of false religion. It's a symbol of covenant breaking, not of a gender, but it's a symbol. And that we remain virgins, spiritual virgin. Keep your virginity. The marriage supper of the Lamb is coming. We'll see that in chapter 19. Will you be a virgin when you come to the marriage supper? Well, as Christians, that's our call. Secondly, to be a Christian means to follow Christ. Pretty simple. I don't really understand Christianity. I really do. It's just too complex. I don't know. It's just, I, I, can't, I can't fathom it. Well, let me make it simple for you. Just follow Christ. Just follow Christ. What do you mean? Well, read the Gospels. Read his words and seek to follow him, seek to obey him. Look at his example in the Gospels. Seek to emulate it. And then hear his apostles as they explain Christianity to us in the, in the uh, epistles. Yeah, I know there's some challenging things there. I know that. But in the general sense of it, to be a Christian is to follow Jesus. Number three. Our status as Christians is we're fruit unto God. We're not the first fruits. Though it's possible you're a first fruits in a certain way. Perhaps you come from a heathen background and family. And you're the first member of your family ever to come to Christ. Perhaps you're in a family with siblings and you're the first of the siblings to be saved. So there's a sense in which we can yet see a first fruit type of setting. But we are not in that age. We are now in just the main harvest but it's still a blessing to be fruit to God. You're the very thing for which Christ came into the world. He came for a harvest of souls. He came and died for you. Take heart. You are part of the great fruit unto God. Fourthly, we saw that being an Israelite is to have no guile. We should not be known by cunning, deceit, trickery, stratagems to catch people and to defraud them and to to lead them astray. The Christian is honest, straightforward and true. That's Christian character. No guile. No baiting of hooks to catch people unaware. That's Christianity. And remember the word, behold an Israelite in whom there's no guile. You know, I've used that phrase myself, and I've, different people have heard me talk about it, and I've, I've thought of individuals in, in my Christian life, and it came to my mind almost instantly, some people, this verse, behold, an Israelite in whom there's no guile. That's the kind of character they have. Be that Israelite. Be that Christian. And then finally, the standing part, number five, as we see here, like the 144,000, if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, you will arrive in heaven at last. You will stand before the throne of a holy God, completely blameless, blameless because of the work of Christ. That is the outcome 
of it all. So persevere, my brethren. Take the 144,000 to their baptism of fire as your example. They overcame because they had these characteristics. They had spiritual purity. They followed Christ's teaching example. They recognized that they were the first fruits unto God. They were Israelites in whom there was no guile. And they had the hope of eternal life, arriving safely, standing in glory before the throne of God, completely justified. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for this vision of the 144,000. May it inspire us today. In Jesus' name, amen.